Welcome to McCullough Christian Center's broadcast today. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.purposemcc.com. All right, we'll we'll uh, <clears throat> come back and pray for those here in just a little bit. Right now, I want you to uh, uh, take your Bible and, and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, this is uh, the second part, hold on just a minute, I'm sorry, yeah, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 1, this is part 2 of the we started last week talking about a subject that's many times avoided uh, in church, but it's a subject that I think is very, uh, very important. As far as I'm concerned in the body of Christ, it's very important, and that's the subject or the topic of uh, the Christian and alcohol, um, and you can paraphrase the Christian and social drinking. Um, I told you last week. I, I'm, I'm definitely <clears throat> not doing this to condemn anybody, uh, but I think it's important that uh, you know. There's no saying that says if you don't stand for <clears throat> for something, you'll fall for anything. So I think it's important that the body of Christ, <clears throat> that the church recognize some things that <clears throat> that I believe the enemy <clears throat> kind of slips in <clears throat> the back door and <clears throat> brings deception into the body of Christ. I should be okay. I'm just kind of good. But anyway, and I think that's one of those things. Uh you know the the church the the body of Christ is battling in this hour uh, for its identity, and the reason that we're battling for our identity as the body of Christ is because we have given up our identity, trying to uh, in, in a quest to win people, we've tried to join people, in in, a, in an effort to win the world, we've tried to become like the world. And so that we could win the world, and and what is what's happened is that it has diluted uh, the power of the gospel down, and I, I'll tell you like this: I would rather lean on the very conservative side, and uh, than I had to lean on the liberal side. So, uh, so we're going to continue that tonight. And like I said, I'm not here to condemn people. As a pastor, I have responsibilities uh, to to put things out, whether people like it or not. And I already have have uh, experienced people uh, that hear that we're talking about this. You know, they they don't want to hear it, and I understand that. Uh, but I still have the responsibility to speak what I believe is truth, and I've never shied away from that, and I never will. And so that's what you're going to hear tonight is what. I believe is truth from God's word, and so uh, as a leader, I have a responsibility of those who are leading in the body of Christ. And like I said last week, if you're a leader, then I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be especially attentive to to your lifestyle. I'm going to be attentive to uh, how you're uh, living on the outside of the church. Why? Why? Because you represent the body of Christ at McCullough Christian Center. And so that's extremely important to me. And I tell people all the time that when you become or when you step into ministry, you step into a glass house. And people are going to be watching you. They're going to be observing. They're going to be listening uh, to your conversation. They're going to be watching you when you're at a restaurant or something like that. So it's extremely important that we recognize that. And, and so, uh, so thus, here we are tonight, all right? So Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 18 is actually the verse that I wanted to uh, just kind of launch out tonight. 
Verse 18 says this, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, that word excess is, is, uh, is also translated debauchery or uh, excessive living or something like that. But the Apostle Paul said, don't be drunk with wine. And we understand. I mean, it's no big, <clears throat> it's no big secret that the Bible speaks explicitly without any question that drunkenness is, is wrong. Uh, there's, there's no question. There's no debate about that. The debate comes, well, pastor, what's wrong with me having a glass of wine? Or what's wrong with me going to a restaurant, sitting down and having a beer or something like that? I'm not going to get drunk. Uh, I'm not being excessive with it. Uh, and so that's where the debate comes. And then, unfortunately, you've got some that that uh, that'll get drunk on Saturday night, and come in on Sunday morning, and and uh, look holy and and sanctified and and all that. Uh, when the Bible is very explicit that that's that's wrong. So we're going to talk about some of that tonight. So, but before we go there, I want I want us to look at the preceding verses in Ephesians chapter five, mainly. Look at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Paul said, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. If you remember, last week we started out, and I told you this, we came out of 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 9, and 10, mainly chapter 10, but we talked about uh, that I gave you some principles, and, and those principles were, some of them were that, that as a Christian, as a born-again believer, my, some of my main responsibilities, not, not as a pastor, but just as a believer, my, some of my most important responsibilities that I have, that I bear, is to be an example to those do, that do not know Christ. In other words, the way that I live will either bring somebody to Christ or it will turn them away from Christ. Uh, how many people do you know tonight that have gotten involved in church, but they saw, they saw the wrong example by somebody in church and they said, I don't need that. I, I, I can do better than that living in the world. And so they left the church. So we have a, we have a responsibility. So, so what Paul was saying there, he said, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And then he said, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and gave himself for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the key here is love. Do I love you enough to deny myself so that you might be saved? Do I love you enough that even though there might be things, and we're going to get to this later, even though there might be things that the Bible does not specifically say you do not do this, but th there's, there's a gray area there. And, and I could be over here and say, well, the Bible doesn't specifically say don't do that, and, but, so I'm going to do it even though the principles of God's Word tell me that that's not what I should do. But do I love you enough to deny my flesh because I don't want to do anything that might pull you or push you away from an, uh, an experience with God. So and then we skip on down to verse, uh, uh, verse 9 or, or verse 8 where, where Paul said this. He said, for you were sometimes darkness. Now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. 
one of the things about about staying away from alcohol that I, I, I can't understand how people in the church world, I can't understand their logic on this, is that that alcohol and alcoholism is a picture of the darkness of the world. The addiction, the the destructiveness of it, uh, the lives that have been destroyed by alcohol and alcoholism and things like that. Paul said this. He said, you were sometimes darkness. In other words, you were sometimes out in the world. You were lost. You had no light in your life. You had, you had no Jesus. You were in the world. You were in darkness. He said, but now you are a light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light. Listen, guys, God, and I'm, I'm going to try not to preach, all right? But listen, God called me out of darkness. He called you out of darkness. He called us into the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. So he called us out of darkness. So it's important for me to recognize that there are certain things in this world that are associated with darkness. The sad thing about it is you ask that question to many church-going people, and they say, oh, no, Pastor. But like it or not, alcohol is associated with darkness. Drugs are associated with darkness. And it's already happening. We haven't seen it here, but it is happening now that there are people that are involved in church that, that see nothing wrong with sitting around smoking a joint or a blunt in their home. Guys, I'm telling you, the enemy is shrewd. He will sneak things in and dilute the gospel down so that, that, that it, it's not the gospel anymore. It's just a man-made doctrine. And I want to tell you something tonight. I've said this before. I'm not going to stand here in this church and waste my time nor your time by living a hypocritical life. And at the end of my days, God look at me and say, I don't know who you are. I'm going to do my very best to know Jesus. I'm going to do my very best to have relationship with him. I'm going to walk. I'm going to do my very best to stay away from the things of the world. I'm going to do my very best to have a testimony that testifies when people look at me, they say, you know what, I see God has done something in your life. And I'm moving on. All right. So, so Paul talks about being imitators of God, not living in excess, not living a life that is uh, that that where you don't have self control, uh, where you don't ha- you don't live a reckless life. Now understand that that when people get saved, there's a process that that you walk through, where you're you're learning. Uh, the Bible, and you're learning how to live for Jesus, and you're learning how to live a a separated life. Understand that, and I'm not going to condemn anybody over that. Guys, I want you to know, I'm not going to condemn you if you drink. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to love you, and it's important for us as the body of Christ to recognize God hadn't called us to to condemn anybody. You know, we're to preach the gospel. As the old fellow said, God didn't call you to clean the fish. He called you to catch the fish. So so we let God clean them, right? So, <clears throat> so one of the first scriptures that, that many people will bring up when, when we start talking about the Christian and alcohol is the story of, of Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2. So let's turn there.
and uh, John chapter 2. Now in, in John chapter 2, you, we're all familiar with that story. Jesus went to a wedding. Um, he and his disciples, undoubtedly, it was some of his uh, kin people or something. And so they went to this wedding <clears throat> at Cana. And <clears throat> the Bible says that, that in the process of the wedding, you've got to understand now that a Jewish wedding was a little bit different than what the weddings that we do today. The weddings we do today, we come together, have a little ceremony, go in the back back there and, and have a little uh, uh, reception. I was trying to say procession, but we have a little reception and uh, everybody goes to the house. But the Jewish wedding actually, actually lasted seven days. I mean, it was, it's a big affair. And, and so that's the reason you can look at the Jewish wedding and see that it's a type of Christ and a type of the body and the return of Christ. But it, it actually lasted seven days. And so during this wedding process that they were in, they ran out of what the Bible calls wine. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him and uh, said, they have no wine. <clears throat> Jesus looked at her and said, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. The Bible says that his mother uh, looked at the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do. Now, even though this was the first recorded miracle of Jesus, I have to throw this in, it's amazing to me that Jesus' mother, Mary, said, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. So that, that kind of lets me know <clears throat> that Jesus had been helping out around the house a little bit, if you know what I mean. And, and that she knew, not only was he the son of God, but she knew that the anointing of God was on his life. So she looked at him and said, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And, and uh, they set uh, six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews and they contained uh, two or three firkins of a piece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. Now the governor of the feast was, was mainly uh, kind of like a wedding uh, planner or a wedding uh, a what? director. Man, I'm losing my words tonight for some reason. But but they were just kind of the overseers of the wedding process and all of that. And so they drew the water out or, or drew it out and took it to the governor of the feast. Now, uh, you know, understand that to the Jew, running out of, of wine was a big, big deal. It was, it was a very big deal. It was a very embarrassing thing because you had all these guests and, and you, your responsibility was to have everything needed to, to take care of those guests. So uh, anyway, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, here's the thing. This first thing that I want to I want to point out. This is this is one of one of the big scriptures that people will use and say, well, you know, pastor, there's nothing wrong with, with drinking wine and all that because after all, Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. All right, so, 
So I want you to notice <clears throat> this passage of Scripture where the governor said at the beginning of the, uh, the set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, they uh, bring out that which is worse. What he was talking about was that at the beginning of the wedding feast, uh, they would set forth what was referred to as the sweetest juice. It, it's, that, it's, it's the juice, the grape juice that was the sweetest, uh, and so they would set that out. And then when people had uh, drank a lot, they would, they would bring out that that was less sweet, that, that, was, uh, that was bitter or something like that. I'm trying to find my notes here, so just bear with me for just a second. All right. So the question is, did Jesus really turn the water into wine? Well, of course he did. We can't get away from that. We, we, don't, we can't skirt around that. The Bible says that he turned water into wine. Second thing is, would Jesus have really turned water into alcoholic wine so that people could get drunk from it? What do you think about that? Do you think Jesus would have have miraculously turn water into wine with an alcoholic content that can make people drunk. Well, I personally don't think so, and the reason that I don't think so is this, that the Bible is very explicit when it talks about drunkenness. So if Jesus had created a wine that, that was high, had a high alcohol content to it where people could get drunk, then it would been would have been contrary to scripture so so what what was it then and here's where we've got to understand that that when we see the word wine we think about that stuff sitting on a, on a, on the shelves in Walmart or something our, the last time I had any dealings with wine, we think about Red Rooster. I don't even know if they make Red Rooster. That was some nasty mess, I'm telling you. Uh, but uh, but it was it was some nasty mess. That was back before Jesus. Uh, so uh, yeah. So but <clears throat> but that's what we think about. But I want you to understand. That wine in the Bible and wine now is very, very different. First of all, the wine that that you read about in the Bible uh, had a very low alcohol content to it. Uh, And I'm getting ahead of myself. But understand that that what Jesus created there was a sweet wine or sweet grape juice. That's the reason that the governor looked at it or, or tasted it and said, man, y'all swapped it up. You're bringing out the best at the last. The picture of that is that Jesus is the best, and he is the last. He's the last Adam. So, uh, so anyway, uh, we understand that Jesus wouldn't have, wouldn't have turned water into wine to get people drunk. So uh, So what would happen is this, that the wine in, in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament, the distilling process wasn't created or wasn't discovered until about two or 300 years after Christ. 
So the only this, this, uh, the only way that that grape juice could be uh, become alcohol was letting it go through that natural fermenting process. And and yes, when it when the when the uh, juice of the grapes went through this fermenting process, you could drink enough of it that you would get drunk. But here's here's the thing. If you go back and study and do some research, you'll find that wine back then was never, very seldom was it drank or drank in its concentrated form. Almost always it was diluted. All right? And we're 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 gonna get to that. So just Hold, hold your finger right there, and let's go to the second scripture that, that you hear a lot about when it comes to alcohol. We're going to come back to this other in just a few minutes. The second scripture that you always hear a lot about is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 23, where Paul was talking to Timothy, and he said this. He was speaking to Timothy, and he said, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach, and your frequent ailments. So, again, people take that verse, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, and say, well, you know, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine, uh, you know, for the, the sake of your stomach. Uh, but what was Paul really talking about there? One thing that I want you to notice, and I noticed this uh, the other day as I was studying this, is is one of the one of the problems in the church, and 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 I'm not one of these that that talks about well, if you get outside the King James Version Bible, you're you're in sin. But I want to encourage you and tell you, you need to be careful what translation of the Bible that you're reading from, and and uh, drawing your conclusions from. I, I just, for some reason, I read this the other day where Paul said, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I read it, this same verse in the Message Bible, and I use the Message Bible, so I'm not condemning anybody. I use it to reference and stuff like that. But in the Message Bible, it says, don't worry too much about what the critics will say. Go ahead and drink a little wine. For instance, it's good for your digestion and good medicine for what ails you. What does that tell you? It tells you go ahead and drink a little wine. It's not going to hurt you. It's good for it's good for uh, your your me- uh, medicine and things like that. So I went and I looked at the Passion Translation. Uh, and again, I'm not condemning you, but you know you just need to be careful what you you take in. In the Passion Translation, it says this, If drinking the water causes you to have stomach ailments, drink some wine instead. So those, that's just an example of two translations that I believe distort that verse. So what's the real meaning of that verse? Paul was speaking to Timothy and saying, Timothy, uh, no longer drink only water but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. First of all, let me give you a little history. Timothy's mom was Jewish. The Jews were adamantly, adamantly opposed to drunkenness. And, and I'm going to give you some information in a minute that they never used wine in its concentrated form. Timothy's dad was a Gentile. Most people agree, most uh, theologians agree that Timothy had adopted this, this idea or this belief system that he totally abstained from wine. He didn't drink any wine. So what was going on, Timothy undoubtedly was having stomach ailments. You got to realize, how many of you have ever been out of this, the United States into foreign third world country or something like that. How many of you have ever been cautioned, do not drink the water? 
How many of you have ever drank the water? How many of you paid dearly for it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but these countries don't have uh, the technology that we do where the water is filtered, it's clean, it's purified. Over there in the Middle East during this time, the water, it was very, very difficult to find clean water. There was a lot of parasites, a lot of disease in the water. You can study this, research it. I'm not, I'm not giving you this out of my own ideas. You can research it, and you'll see that the water uh, many times had parasites and, and all kind of uh, diseases and stuff like that in it. Many people died because of the unsanitary conditions of the water that they would get. It was a public well in the middle of the city. Uh, rats, things would crawl over in there, fall in there, die. And so the water could get, uh, get contaminated. So undoubtedly, Timothy was drinking only water. And he was having stomach issues. Paul comes and says, Timothy, listen, instead of drinking just water, mix a little wine with your water. Because the grape juice will purify or will kill the bacteria in your stomach that is causing your stomach issues. I don't know about you, but I'll just give you this. I drink Welch's grape juice. I started doing this about three years ago because it was about twice a year I was going to get a virus. And <clears throat> you can ask my wife, when I get a virus, everybody in the neighborhood knows he is throwing up because I get loud and, and ugly when I throw up. But somebody told me, said, look, when you hear of a virus going around, every night before you go to bed, get you about a, a, a half a glass of Welch's grape juice and drink it. It will make a world of difference. And I've started doing that. And I, you know, I haven't had a virus in probably two or three years. Because the grape juice destroys the bacteria or something or balances out the gases in your stomach, your digestive system. And, and so, but that's what Paul was talking to Timothy about. He wasn't telling Timothy, Timothy, you know, get you, get you some wine, drink you some wine and all that. He was saying, mix a little wine with your water because it will help your digestive system. All right? So, <clears throat> so once we, we see that, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what about the alcohol content that was in the grape juice? All right? So I, I'm, I'm going to just read this to you. Today, there are some that, that are quick to point out that the Bible approves the use of all modern alcoholic beverages in moderation. The unstated assumption of this argument is that modern alcoholic beverages are very similar to biblical wine. It turns out that the assumption is really a presumption. Because New Testament wine, by which I mean the wine ordinarily consumed in the New Testament world, was significantly different from many modern alcoholic beverages. First of all, ancient beverages did not contain distilled alcohol like modern alcoholic beverages often do. Distillation was, in, was invented by Arab alchemists in the 8th century, long after the New Testament era. The strongest alcoholic beverage that was accessible to the New Testament authors and their original readers was natural wine 
that had an alcoholic content of about 11 to 12% before dilution. Secondly, ancient wine was normally diluted. Every ancient pagan considered drinking wine full strength to be a barbaric practice. And I was kind of shocked when I started looking at that. But if you go back and do just a little bit of study, you'll see where, where this, is, this is true. Uh, kings and, and even barbaric people or people that wasn't Jewish back then, they considered uh, drinking wine uh, that was undiluted as a no-no. You don't do that. Uh, and so they typically diluted wine with large amounts of water before the wine was consumed. Ancient wine was stored undiluted in large jars called amphorae. Before it was consumed, it was poured into large bowls called craters. <clears throat> where it was mixed with water before being poured into cups. You've got to understand that, that in the time of the New Testament being written, you couldn't go down the road to a store and buy a Coke. You know, you couldn't go and buy, you know, anything. Basically, if you got outside of water, Milk, grape juice, that was about it. So if you pulled up to McDonald's and said, I want a drink, it's either going to be grape juice, milk, or, or something like that. Because that's all they had. When they sat down to dinner, they didn't have sweet tea. Lipton wasn't around. All they had to drink was water mixed with, with grape juice or milk. So you got to realize that when a family sat down to, at, a, at a dinner table, parents wasn't going to serve their kids something that, that had the uh, probability of intoxicating them. So they diluted the wine down. And they diluted the juice down. And so, so the water, the ratio of wine to water varied. However, the ancients were virtually unanimous that a dilution rate of at least two parts water to one part wine was necessary. So I, I came across this, <clears throat> this uh, work, and, and I'm, uh, I'm not even going to try to call his name, but it was from a, bo a book written in A.D. 228 uh, called The Banquet of the Learned, where they listed the dilution rates of water and of wine and water. Homer, any of you ever heard of Homer and Pliny? All right. Uh, Homer said that the dilution rate of, of water with, with wine was 20 to 1. That's 20 parts water and one part wine. Pliny said the, the dilution rate should be eight parts water and one part wine. So you can see in that, and I'm not going to go down the list. I've got a whole list of, of uh, historians that, that stated the dilution rates for water and wine. Remember, the Jews absolutely did not drink grape juice or wine undiluted. All right, you can you can read that and study it. It was it was forbidden. It was not done. So, uh, so you understand there that when when they diluted the wine down, it was already a small alcohol content, but when they diluted it, it even brought it down more. So, uh, so that when <clears throat> When you're sitting around the table with your children, it was basically no different than drinking Kool-Aid or something like that. But it was healthy. It would help with their digestive system. 
So going back to Jesus turning the water into wine in John chapter 2, and what, G, what Paul said to Timothy, one of the things that happens today is, is we talked about, well, you know, people say, well, Pastor, you know, I have that liberty. That's, that's my Christian liberty. Well, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, we talked about this last Wednesday night, and, and I'm trying to close. But we talked about where Paul was talking to the Corinthian believers, and he was talking about if my eating meat offends you, then I will eat no meat. That sets a principle for us in the, new t- in, in, uh, the time that we're living in, that I need to be careful if I do anything to offend somebody, then I literally am taking their life into my hands. Paul said this about the disciplining of his body. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26 and 27, he said, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. The King James Version says, after preaching to others, I would, should become a castaway. All right? So what Paul was saying was literally that I keep my body under subjection or under submission. In other words, I discipline myself. All right? The Christian walk is a walk of discipline. All right? God's not going to come up to you and, and every time you start to sin, he's not going to come up to you, to you and slap you behind the head and say, don't do that. You know better than that. If you keep on, I'm going to take my staff to you. He's not going to do like my mama used to do in church and grab you by that organ of submission, grab you by the ear. I always told mom, that's the reason my ears are so big, because you stretched them out in church. But God's not going to do that. So there's a part in my life to where I have to discipline myself to keep myself in submission to the authority of God. There are words that I have to discipline myself not to go there. I get mad like everybody else, and I can lose my temper just like everybody else. I mean, we'll just move on, but, but you understand. But you have to discipline yourself. You have to recognize that, that there are going to be temptations that are going to come your way. Things are going to come your way, and it's going to be tempting for you to do that. That flesh in you is going to say, feed me, feed me. Let me have that. Let me taste that. And you got to realize that, that the Christian has a responsibility of disciplining themselves because I know that, that if I did that, that it has the possibility of causing somebody to stumble. Not to even mention that it could cause me to stumble. So the, so the reality is this, that, that we're a body of believers here that, that has a big collection of people that have come out of alcoholism. People that have, that have, that have come out from under the addiction of drugs and things like that. And so... So as, as a man of God, not as a pastor, but as a man of God, even though I might be down on a riverbank somewhere where nobody's watching, 
for me to sit there and, and, and partake in alcohol or whatever and somebody drive up. <laughs> Several years ago, I was in Monroeville. So it wasn't none of y'all. Um, <laughs> but I was in Monroeville, and I drove up. I was coming up behind a vehicle, and I moved over into the left lane because I recognized the, the lady that was driving the vehicle. And so I moved up and moved over purposely because I was just going to go up beside her and speak to her. <clears throat> and so I, I, I pull up beside this, this lady, <laughs> and, and she is she's sucking the end out of a cigarette about that long. And uh, and when I pulled up beside her, she looked she looked over there at me and saw who it was. And I know she threw that cigarette in the floorboard of the car. I know that because I mean it disappeared like that. <laughs> and she was doing all that. <laughs> but. You know, you have to be careful. Listen, as Christians, we don't live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. There's a lot of things that I might could do that might not send me to hell. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that if you were to walk into a restaurant and see pastors sitting there drinking, a Bud Light, and you were a recovering alcoholic. You looked at me and said, well, you know, pastor's doing that, so it shouldn't be too bad. I can handle that. And one bottle leads to a fall in your life. You know whose blood? That blood is required with me. All right. So Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, God, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So what Paul is saying there is, is guys, in, in verse 1, he said, I, want you, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to be misunderstanding of what I'm about to say. I want you to get what I'm about to say because it's extremely important, and I'm paraphrasing. And Paul said, I want you to understand that our fathers <clears throat> from the past came out of Egypt. They were under the cloud of God's glory. God brought them out of Egypt with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They were under the cloud of God's glory, and they all passed through the Red Sea, which was a picture of baptism. And he said, and, and all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, <clears throat> the manna that God provided in the wilderness. And he said, they all drank of the same spiritual drink, which was the water that came out of the rock when Moses smote the rock and water came out, which was a picture of life coming out of Christ. All right? He said they all did that. And he said for they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He said, but nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And, and I'm, I'm going to stop there. But what Paul was saying was, guys, don't be ignorant. Don't be misunderstanding. In other words, these people came out of Egypt. They came out of bondage. They came out of, of, of slavery and sin. God brought them out 
with great signs and wonders and with power and, and with the anointing and, and miracles and all of that, and they came out of Egypt. But when they got in the wilderness, we discovered that, that even though they had came out of Egypt, Egypt didn't come out of them. Oh, my, I'm just about to preach right now. Listen, and that's a big problem. Because Paul said what happened is it led to them being overthrown. That's an en- like an enemy had come and, and, and overthrew them. The enemy had come and pulled down one authority in their lives and set up another authority which was not from God. And see, that's... that's the problem, if, if we can understand, yes, God brought me out of Egypt. Yes, God delivered me from alcohol. Yes, God delivered me from pornography. Yes, God delivered me from drug addiction. Yes, he delivered me from cussing and, and swearing and, and all of that. He delivered me from that. But what I've got to understand is that I've got to give God the time to sanctify me and get Egypt out of me. And I don't want to be guilty of coming out of the world, but yet the world staying in me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you see, listen, the gospel, and I, I'm, I'm trying, the gospel in its purest form, the fact that, that Jesus was born of a virgin, died on a cross, shed his blood for me on the cross of Calvary, was wounded for my transgressions and bruised for my iniquities, and the chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. The purity of the gospel dictates that there is no way for the gospel to touch your life and your life not be transformed. Because the power of the gospel is a transforming power. It transforms your life. But what we're doing today and what we're seeing today is a man-made doctrine that wants the blessing of the gospel, but they don't want the transformation that the gospel will produce in my life. And see, if you are not transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you're always going to be battling. Listen, I said this the other night during baptism. Jesus did not come and give himself on the cross of Calvary to make bad men better. Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary and gave his life to make dead men live. What happened in the wilderness is that God brought them out of death and brought them into life. But because they could not get death out of them, they wound up dying physically in the wilderness. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, it says this. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So here's the thing. I must be careful as a believer of what I entertain and what I accept in my life. That old-fashioned word that we hear very little about today, holiness. Holiness. Holiness is not a church or a denomination. Holiness is a lifestyle. Holiness is not long dresses, long sleeves, 
Holiness is a lifestyle. And the Bible says this, that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And you say, well, Pastor, what is the definition of holiness? Simply put, holiness is being separated and set apart. Mm. Separated and set apart. Separated and set apart. As a Christian, as a believer, I cannot for the sake of my testimony, participate in things that everybody else does. I've got to be different. There's got to be something about me that's different. And listen, and I'm fixing to close. <laughs> that's Joyce. I, I really am. But I want you to understand this <clears throat> because I've watched it, and, and, and you can tell it. We believe in the power of the Holy Ghost. We believe, we believe in the working of the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that, that there's power in the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. And so... I've watched it. And the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is pure. He is undefiled. He is sinless. But I want to tell you something, that even though Holy Spirit is sinless, and whatever you do cannot corrupt Holy Spirit that's inside of you, because it is the very Spirit of Christ that lives inside of you. So, so my mess-ups is not going to corrupt the very Spirit of Christ. But let me tell you what it does do. When I have Holy Spirit living inside of me and I begin to dabble and play and compromise with things around me and things of the world, what it does is it grieves the Spirit of God living inside of me. And when the Spirit of God is grieved, it means that it depresses him. It grieves him. And when he is grieved, you know what happens next? I believe what happens next is it quenches him from moving in my life. In other words, there's a flow of God's Spirit that's coming out of me. There's a, there's, it's like a water faucet that has been turned on, and the water is flowing out of me. Holy Spirit is working and moving, and I start dabbling around and compromising and doing things that I shouldn't do because I'm not reading the Word of God that tells me that I don't need to do that. And so I'm playing around, and when I do that, it grieves the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you're like me, but when I get grieved in my spirit, I get quiet. When something bothers me, I get quiet. Or I should say quieter. All right? I get quiet. And so the Holy Spirit gets quiet. And then the next thing that happens is like taking that water hose and crimping it and stopping the flow of the water. But can I tell you the danger? And I, whew, I'm having pro trouble stopping. But can I tell you the danger of that? The danger of that is that people can continue to act. They can continue to look spiritual even though the Holy Spirit has been quenched in them. They look good on the outside, but there's something that's not working because Holy Spirit is not flowing. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
So we have to be careful about what we allow ourselves to participate in. Because I don't want, I don't want to be guilty. One of my prayers on a consistent basis is, is Holy Spirit, let me not be guilty of doing anything that would grieve you. Do I come close? Yeah, I come close. But I'm so glad tonight to know that when I'm putting my hands out to touch something that's going to grieve Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will say, son, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do that. Because, Lord, I don't want to do anything that's going to grieve you, and I don't want to do anything that would quench the flow of your spirit. Amen.